The Church Times, in association with the Royal School of Church Music, will be holding a webinar on Monday the 19th of October on how hymns and liturgy have been affected by the pandemic. Tickets are £10 or £5 for Church Times subscribers and RSCM members. For more information and to book tickets, visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash hymns hyphen and hyphen worship. Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. I just want to say uh, what an enormous pleasure and privilege it is to be hosting again this uh, festival of preaching. We are so thrilled that uh, this collaboration between ourselves and Hymns Ancient and Modern and our sponsors uh, continues to proceed and so delighted that so many people are actually uh, logging on to this and able to see it. So it's really good to be with you. So I want to do something this morning which is a little bit unusual. I'm going to talk about uh, Jesus being uh, the verb of God. Uh, and some years ago, I was uh, training for ordination, quite a long time ago, actually. And I was dispatched to a rural uh, sort of uh, place to uh, lead a Bible study. Uh, I mean, we were there for a few weeks and we had to uh, do this as an exercise for which we were graded. It's quite odd uh, to be essentially uh, graded by lots of people on how you lead a Bible study. But uh, the passage I chose was John 13. Uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And what I do remember from this was we all went round the room and everybody shared an example of being humble. That was the point. Something where everybody had actually stooped and decided to be, in its way, um, uh, take on something that was humble. So everybody gave an example. It was incredibly moving. And when we got to the vicar, he told a personal story about being humiliated. So not really about being humble at all, but something that had happened to him that had sort of reduced him somehow. And the room fell silent and nobody quite knew what to do. And after an awkward pause, we continued. But I suppose the question I want to ask in the light of John 13 is, what does it look like for you, for me, and for the church to be humble, to humble ourselves, a voluntary, deliberate decision to stoop low and to become, as it were, part of that economy of God, where we elect essentially to follow the hymn in Philippians 2. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of us. We know that when we look at the life and work of Jesus, his decision to humble himself is one that he takes, and it leads to his extraordinary actions and teachings. He's constantly among us as a servant. He chides those who get above themselves, either because of their morality or their faith or their status. But Jesus, as the word of God, is also the verb of God. Jesus is doing God. He's got interjections and pronouns, but he's doing God. He's about his father's business. And when we encounter Jesus, we often find that Jesus is doing God with people that require humility. Lepers, the blind, the lame, 
the excluded, those who are marginalized, those who are downtrodden. When Jesus walks, talks and moves and speaks, he is the verb of God. He's often an interjection as well, moving into the midst of people to essentially say, now look, let's stop this and reconsider. Now, this is not a lesson in grammar, as you might expect, uh, although I do think of John Henry Newman's phrase about the ascent of God and uh, faith being that. But I'm particularly interested in how Jesus speaks and acts and moves and what that says to the church today. We know that Jesus elected to be amongst the poor and the lonely. But what we don't often do in the church is celebrate and remember the extraordinary ways in which God moves amongst us and asks us to get down low and to be truly humble. I don't know how many of you uh, remember that uh, marvellous uh, children's book and also a TV series uh, called uh, The Wombles. But um, you may not know that the word womble is a derivative of omble. It's an old French word from offal of deer. Omble and umble have been conflated in our English language. And the wombles, of course, were furry recyclers. In the words of Mike Batson, they lived in burrows and they made good use of the things that we find things that the everyday folk leave behind. I just want to put it to you that there's a bit of wombling going on in the ministry of Jesus, making good use of the things that he finds, people that everyday folk leave behind. Tax collectors, prostitutes, other kinds of sinners, the marginalised, the orphans, the widows, these are the left behind in Jesus's day. And his humility is not merely the setting aside of his status. It is becoming amongst them an agent of change and solidarity and unconditional love. Ombling and wombling is about working with foraging. And Jesus himself says it in a parable. When you host a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or your rich neighbours. Otherwise, they invite you in return and you will be repaid. When you have a banquet, says Jesus, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. In other words, don't go picking the plump, low-hanging fruit. Go to the highways and the byways, the edges of society and beyond, as Jesus does. Now, we know that this is not an easy lesson, not at all. But I want to suggest to you that sometimes uh, we can actually take our cue from the very things that bind us together in our congregations. When I was training for ordination after my experience of uh, this rather odd Bible study being graded on John 13, uh, Emma and I had uh, one year working in the former steel town of Concert in County Durham. It's a town of about 10 to 12,000 people, 
completely broken by the economic ravages that set in after the closure of the steelworks. We were there on a one-year placement and the remarkable thing about that community was that whenever they came together socially, they always ate the same thing. It was corned beef pie. Now, I'm guessing that most of you have not eaten corned beef pie before. Corned beef pie is pastry, thick, short crust, corned beef mashed together with boiled potatoes and sealed with a pastry lid. Don't get any fancy ideas about this being latticed or in any way forgiving. It was basically a meat and carb envelope. It was served hot or cold at every parish function. And occasionally when it was served hot, it came with a side of boiled potatoes. I often used to reflect on the fact that this meal was probably more ballast for the wind that whipped off the moors than it was anything about nutrition. But we ate of one common meal. There was no one-upmanship. There was no, as it were, prizing and competing for best cake, best lunch, best bring and share. One thing that we all ate with one recipe. Years later, when Emma was vicar in Sheffield, we encountered a very similar thing. Every parish function was meat and potato pie with minted peas. One recipe, one food, one common social meal. We shouldn't be surprised at this, I think, because after all, the Eucharist, the very heart of what we do sometimes, is about one common bread. It's about gathering and breaking that. And Jesus himself, of course, belongs to Bethlehem, which in Aramaic means the town of bread. A God who chooses to become humble was a scandal to the mindset 2000 years ago. Jesus amongst us, as common as bread, the body of Christ. A humble birth was not for the gods, but it was for our God, who in emptying himself chose humility. Perhaps like me, you've been puzzled by a church that collects strategies for growth and tactics for management from the secular world of corporate business, but then is completely deaf to how those same corporate businesses often promote equality, diversity, learning and development and practice proper employment and human resources. In fact, these businesses are so well practiced by many of our top business corporations, they hardly need to be mentioned, let alone preached. The church, in contrast, preaches what it does not practice. Instead of constantly trying to present a church triumphant, what about a church that is receptive, learning and humble? Not a church anymore of monologue, but a church of dialogue. Instead of a church stuck in broadcast mode, what about a church that actually is in reception mode? Humble enough and self-aware enough to know that it does not have all the answers and can truly listen and learn. In our calling, like Jesus, to become the verb of God, we recognize that we cannot do this alone in our own strength. Through his flesh, his sensate incarnation, preaching and practices, 
the body of Christ communicates love, but also receives love. Jesus is like this and lives like this because the pattern that God seeks to restore in us is relational, equitable, welcoming. It's one of friendship in which grace, love and mercy are completely abundant. And Jesus can, in his incarnation, be therefore party to mutual relationships. And this is evident in his encounters with Gentiles, where he's quite willing to listen and to learn and to change. At the base of the Statue of Liberty in New York, which is, of course, the iconic figure of liberty, which towers above the skyline as you approach it from the sea, you find that figure of liberty holding the flame of freedom, enlightening the world, but also a beacon of welcome and hope to immigrants that had been for centuries pouring into America, not just out of choice, but because often of religious, ethnic and political persecution in Europe, or because of economic hardship and famine sometimes also rooted in their national or ethnic identity. More people from Ireland and Irish extraction living in the US now than live in Ireland. And at the base of the statue is a bronze plaque with a sonnet by the American poet Emma Lazarus. The poem is called The New Colossus, and Lazarus wrote her poem in 1883. This is what she says. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This for centuries now has been the heart and the core of the American soul, a place that welcomes all, a place that actually values the contribution of people who arrive on their shore with seemingly nothing. People who have been neglected and persecuted. But you find in that sonnet something like a 20th, 19th, 21st century beatitude. Here's a nation, and possibly, dare I say, a church, that says in receiving these people, we don't just receive their poverty and dole out charity. We receive them as gift, people who can make really good contributions to our welfare, our diversity, our life and enrich our society. The church therefore needs to listen and receive from these kinds of voices and live. Many of them will be spoken truths to power that come from individuals and groups committed to things like gender justice, from the marginalized and the stigmatized because maybe of their sexuality, those silenced and shunned because of the shame of the church 
through the abuse it has permitted individuals to suffer and endure, but can no longer face and bear to engage with, from current and future generations of younger people who now no longer trust the church or believe it to be good or true. We need to listen and learn. Without humility, the church is going to be lost in its storied pomp and the church will be lost in its own self-regard. The late 20th century revivalist uh, John Wimber was a really deft preacher with a very easy Californian style of communication. And he wants to find Christianity as doing the stuff. And in many respects, he was right. I recall him once at a conference chiding the seemingly endless parade of rather sort of pathetic, prophetic words that kept hogging the limelight and interrupting the worship and the preaching. And they were only memorable words of prophecy for being so utterly general and forgettable. After one of these frequent interruptions, he went to the microphone and said, OK, I've had enough of this. I have a prophecy for the church. Two words. Wake up. Wake up. Quite so. Wimber, and controversially for his time, took the view that people who were persuaded into Christianity by reasoned arguments were always going to be at the mercy of better ones. That said, he was right in this. Churches doing things is usually far better than churches saying things. On this, I could not agree more. Yet our current ecclesial culture thinks that if we could just do church better, whether that's messy, fresh, traditional or alternative, many more would flood through the doors. I have a retort from a secular interlocutor, Alistair Campbell. Don't do church, do God. To contradict the words of Alistair Campbell, who butted into an interview in Vanity Fair with Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister about his Christian faith. Campbell, you may remember, said some nearly 20 years ago now, I'm sorry, we don't do God. But Christians are only meant to do one thing. We are meant to do God. This is the point of being a Christian. Our problem is that we think by attending to the abstract, the church in this case, perhaps, we fix the problem. So better management, better professionalization is often proffered. That ushers in more ecclesiocracy. Others prefer to pay attention to techniques for numerical church growth that place great faith in science or the art of ecclesionomics. Others say we can't fix the church anymore, we best leave it alone and turn to something entirely new, a kind of boutique gathering that targets niche markets. Let's leave inherited church behind for some vague gestating shape, a kind of form of ecclesianarchy. None of these solutions, it seems to me, are particularly helpful or relevant. They don't deal with the fundamental problem. What is that problem? It's me. It's you. It's us. Because we shouldn't be doing church first, we should be doing God. And in saying do God, it's crucial to remember that Christianity can 
all too easily collapse into niceness and politeness with true charity substituted for mere civility. Too often Christians are just happy to be witnesses but not activists. We watch and we comment as bystanders but we prefer not to get involved. Churches develop all too easily a kind of institutional muteness, selective blindness, partial deafness. But Jesus was different and keenly sensate towards pain, alienation, injustice, marginalisation, as well as apathy and indifference. Time and time again, Jesus called out his audiences on their apathy and indifference. We're called to do God, to be the verb of God, to be like Christ. Courage and wisdom to act is what is needed. This is what being a Christian means in today's world, doing God. If I can say just something personal as we close this session. Over the years, I've been continually struck by the deep connections between humility and reception and the authentic grounded life to which we are all called more personally over the last few years i found myself accompanied by and cared for by individuals and groups who have had their lives severely damaged by the church many of these people have suffered sexual abuse from clergy and laity and church leaders which has been covered up for years and has not been allowed to be spoken of. Others have been falsely accused and treated as though guilty. They have much in common, for in their cries to be heard by the church, listened and cared for as people, they've been denied truth, justice, empathy, compassion, and instead found themselves by, in their cries, marginalised and stigmatised. You might have thought that people brought this low, reduced really to rubble and ruin, would have nothing left but their anger. I have found it is not so. In their resilient, moving humanity, they very often behave with integrity, they model fortitude, tenacious morality and have shown no sign of relinquishing their courage, compassion and concern to put wrongs right. They have not collapsed into despair and in my friendships and work with them I've often been reminded of the poem by Anna Aktonmova. If all who have begged for help from me in this world, all the holy innocents, broken wives and cripples, the imprisoned, the suicidal. If they had sent me one kopeck, I should have become richer than all Egypt. But they did not send me kopecks. Instead, they shared with me their strength. And so nothing in this world is stronger than I, and I can bear anything, even this. Jesus, as the word of God, doesn't just become humble on his own. In his humility, he becomes receptive to the Gentiles. 
he learns to receive from the world around him. And he offers us a pattern of polity and discipleship, which I think is the way forward beyond our current crises. A grounded, authentic, listening, learning church that understands it has much to receive from the world. And when it can get off its high horse and stop its pompous stories and set aside its status in its humility, not its humiliation, it will be able to offer Jesus, the verb of God, and you and I will be freer to do God in our faith. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.